My guest on the show this week is Emma Thompson. We talk about building life search, promoting positive protection stories, and the Protection Distributors Group. It's a great interview full of insights and ideas about company culture and customer engagement. Welcome to episode 140 of the Marketing and Finance Podcast. This is the podcast for ideas and inspiration on marketing your business and growing your business and for discussing topics on all things finance. And now here's your host, Roger Edwards. Hey everyone and welcome to the show. Thanks for downloading or streaming the Marketing and Finance Podcast. I really do appreciate your support. I'm Roger Edwards, a marketing guy from Edinburgh, helping businesses like yours keep their marketing strategy simple and the BS at bay. If you need help marketing your business, putting together a content and social media plan, or just want to talk about keeping your marketing simple, please do get in touch. Visit rogeredwards.co.uk and let's chat. So let's talk to Emma Thompson from LifeSearch. We chat about the success of LifeSearch, one of the UK's biggest protection insurance intermediaries, how company culture is important in developing a true customer focus, making sure people see positive PR stories rather than focusing on the odd negative one, how real stories about the experiences of real people are the best way of broaching a dull subject like insurance, how creating your own awards event can improve products and service in your industry, and the development and successes to date of the Protection Distributors Group. This is an awesome interview and we cover so much ground and Emma has such an infectious passion for a subject that many people feel is pretty dull. Emma is Life Office Relations Director at LifeSearch. She consults with financial services product providers on the strengths and weaknesses of their offerings to help them increase their business. Externally, she provides advice on product, e-commerce and process development and is a member of the F&TRC Protection Forum, the Income Protection Protection Task Force and the Protection Distributors Group. She also has a regular column in Money Marketing Magazine. So let's get straight into that interview with Emma right here on the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Emma Thompson, welcome to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Hi, Roger. Where are you Skyping me from today, Emma? I'm from lovely Lincoln, um, and the weather's not too bad here either, actually. The sunshine is out, which is great. So you're not actually in central London today? No, no, I'm at home today. Fantastic. Emma, you work for LifeSearch, which is probably the biggest protection specialist financial advisor firm in the United Kingdom. And it's going to be really interesting to talk to you about how your careers develop within LifeSearch and, and indeed where LifeSearch is going. And we're also going to talk about your involvement in the Protection Distributors Group. But before we get into that, Emma, tell the listeners of the Marketing and Finance podcast a little bit about yourself, where you came from, where you're going, what your ambitions are, and basically what makes Emma Thompson tick. Bit of a bit of a, a big question, really. Um, so, as I said, uh, I live in Lincoln. I spent most of my childhood growing up here, and then I moved down south um, when I was sort of 21. Spent the best part of well, sort of 15, 16 years living down in the southeast, and then decided to move back up to lovely Lincoln. Um, I moved um, down to, down south to get a job after graduating university. 
um, really. I did a history degree. Um, so like many of us working in insurance and financial services, we didn't actually do anything that actually led <laughs> us to work in insurance or financial services. And I certainly have no intention of doing so. Um, it's one of those things that I think a lot of us sort of fall into. Mm. Um, but I began my career, um, I guess my proper career, working at Unum. Um, I joined there in January 99, um, joined their underwriting team, um, and then moved to Life Search in March 2000 and haven't really looked back since. It's interesting that you said that most of us didn't start out intending to get into financial services. It's very similar with me. I left university wanting to get into a marketing career and ended up sort of getting into marketing through the back door by starting in a financial services firm and then eventually getting transferred into the marketing department. But you've obviously been with LifeSearch for quite a long time. You've worked your way up to a senior position within LifeSearch. So it's obviously the sort of environment that suits you. I think what what makes our industry quite unique is that it is something that a lot of people never really contemplate joining. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people that, yeah, they have fallen into it, as you said, because they've wanted to get into sales or marketing or there's a graduate post and they're not really sure what it's all about. Um, I mean, I literally just needed to find a job and in Lincolnshire, you know, there just weren't many opportunities. So that's why I went down to, to Surrey. Um, but, you know, I mean, I wanted to be a, a curator at a museum. So very, very different <laughs> from what I'm doing today. But I think that what what made me stay is that what we do, it, it can make a, a hugely positive difference to people. Mm. Um, you know, we're not just we're not just selling shoes and handbags or cars or holidays. You know, what, what we do is, is really important. So I think whilst there's you know, there's career progression and there's obviously something in it for yourself as an individual, knowing that you're actually doing something that's making a really positive difference to people and the wider community. I think that's a really something, something that all of us can be quite proud about and something that's quite special. And I think that certainly for me anyway, it is a motivator in terms of my career. I think it'd be quite difficult to leave now and do something completely different without having that kind of um, social aspect of actually doing something that you know is, is making a positive difference. So is that a thread that's woven throughout the life search culture, Emma? I guess on the face of it, you're a financial advisor firm, admittedly focusing on protection. So you're recommending that people take out life insurance, critical illness, income protection. But you're actually f- selling financial well-being, aren't you? And is that the sort of message that you put over to your clients? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a really nice way of putting it. Um, I mean, for, from the very early days of Life Search, I think what set Life Search apart as a, as a firm is is its internal culture. And without wanting to sound too cheesy, um, <laughs> I think it is really important that within firms, particularly firms responsible for the kind of work that we're all doing, you know, helping families when tragedy strikes, it's really important to make people understand what the end result is going to be mm-hmm. and that it's not just about hitting targets and, and you know, winning sales in terms of whatever role you're in. Um, and we've always had sort of a, a, a an open and honest culture sort of drummed into us from from the very first first days of beginning at Life Search. And that's, that's, carried on you know even you know even today sort of you know 17 years after after joining that's still really strong and whilst it's become more difficult to kind of maintain that sort of family feel culture as we've grown considerably it's something that we've definitely been working on to make sure that not only as colleagues do we treat people well that we then transfer that into how we treat our customers and treating them as individuals as human beings and not just pure numbers Mm. because ultimately whatever role you're in whether you're in an actuarial team or underwriting or sales or even just opening the post working for an insurance company all your efforts do end up 
contributing to something that actually really supports families and businesses when tragedy strikes. We're, we're all doing a good thing and helping people understand that end goal and that you're part of a really big picture that actually does make huge amounts of social good for people, then I, I think that's really important. And it definitely comes down to having that really positive culture within within, within your own within your own company. Yeah, I think the cultural thing is so important. And, and, and again, we all know that insurance isn't exactly the most exciting topic and, and most people don't wake up in the morning and think, right, I'm going to talk about life insurance today. <laughs> but but if, you're, if you're a company that's engaging and has a, a really engaging culture and, and has employees who sound enthusiastic about insurance, I know that can sound quite a, a, a difficult thing to be, but if they do sound passionate about what they're talking about, then that passion will eventually rub off onto the customer and the customer will feel comfortable talking about these topics with a company like yourself absolutely you know it's really not easy to to get people to understand that that they need to be buying what we're trying to sell them um and you know as you said it's not the most exciting of of product ranges to be talking about you know it's certainly getting people to understand that they might die early or they might get sick you know they're not the most cheery of topics but i certainly think that just trying to get your own uh, your own colleagues, your own employees, you know, people, we don't really use the word staff at LifeSec, no. but you know, all our people to really be thinking about that the, these are clients at the end of the day, they have got their families. And we talk about, you know, families protected rather than sales figures, you know, how many families protected have we managed to to achieve this week? This, and it, I think, you know, getting that language um, changed within within organisations can really help to focus on what's important. And it is people, not just numbers, sales figures, market shares, all of that. What we're doing it is all about people at the end of the day. Yeah. And it's not just the culture that sets Live Search apart, is it? You also do a lot of work trying to get stories into the media. You know, Live Search gets a lot of PR, both for itself as a business, but also for the protection industry as a whole. Why is PR so important to the life search model, Emma? I mean, I think I think all of us, all of us working in protection, need to be focused far more on PR. And mm. um, you know, in the PR that life search does, you know, does have two benefits. One, it helps to raise raise brand awareness for life search. But our key driver is really to to raise awareness of protection as a whole to consumers. Mm. You know, uh, you know, uh, our brand is not one that's out there being marketed directly. Um, you know, so so PR from that point of view isn't a huge driver for us, but certainly helping more consumers knock on the door of insurers, you know, portals, whatever it is, looking for insurance and growing the market will obviously have a benefit to us as well as all the other firms working within protection as well. You know, we've got a huge, a hugely underprotected population in the UK, as do other countries as well. But obviously, you know, UK is our is our focus. Mm. And we've all got to do a lot more to try and work with journalists, you know, because a lot of them are really, really encouraging, you know, in terms of protection, they really want to write stories about it, they can see the benefits of it. You know, when people still kind of talk about, you know, there's only ever negative press in the papers, I just think either you're, you've got your eyes closed, or perhaps your organisation only flags up to you the ones that, that are the, the watchdog stories or the Daily Mail headlines when claims haven't been paid, and not actually the positive stories that a lot of journalists do get out there. And I think it's probably, you know, we, we, we might point the finger at journalists to say only bad stories sell headlines. But I think internally, I think only bad stories actually hit you know, boardrooms and, and management teams within certainly within within insurers organisations. I think there's not enough publicity about all the positive press that goes on. But we need to do a lot more of it. You know, we need to have more campaigns like Seven Families. We need to be working together 
as a as an overall team as a team as in the overall industry to make sure that more consumers understand the risks that are out there and what the solutions can be to actually make sure that they're not actually having difficulties when they're not able to work or when you know they themselves you know their partner passes away or they pass away and then their family is left struggling to pay the rent or pay the mortgage we've just got to do a lot more to promote what we're doing essentially yeah that's a really good point about boardrooms isn't it i can just see it now the boardroom will see a copy of an article in a newspaper if it's um, accusing them of not paying a claim or it's accusing them of bad service and they'll get all very worried about that and they'll put plans in place to react to it etc but you've, you've you can imagine that those people in the boardroom won't be seeing on a day-to-day basis the positive stories that you've talked about and actually they should be because they, they, on on the one hand they should be proud of those stories because it's reflecting well on them as a business and, and the industry as a whole but secondly they need to focus on on a balance across the board and, and, and see the positives and not just the negatives if the industry is going to overcome these perceptions that people have about us. I think it's also that there's, there's a lot of focus, probably naturally naturally so, that if your firm is mentioned in an article, then you get to see it. But actually, whether you work for provider A and provider B and C and, and E have been featured in a really positive story about the benefits of income protection or the benefits of business protection or critical illness cover, then that's still really good marketing and PR for, for our industry. And that could help more consumers pick up the phone to an advisor or go online and search for a quote and you as provider A might still benefit from that, but you're not necessarily going to have seen it because you're not featured in it. And I think that's sometimes that's perhaps hampering some of this sort of awareness of positive PR stories. If you perhaps weren't the firm that got mentioned, it just gets ignored. It's under the radar. So I just think perhaps, you know, whether there needs to be an organisation within the industry that every time there's a positive press story that that gets emailed out to every network, every insurer, every IFA, that kind of thing, so that people can see it then I don't know whether that's the solution or not. But I think there needs to be a far more awareness for each individual firm's marketing teams to look across the board at positive stories and not just perhaps the ones that feature their own firm. Yeah, and you mentioned Seven Families, and I'm a great fan of Seven Families. It achieved some remarkable results. But effectively what it was was seven stories, wasn't it? It was seven stories about people affected by illness and how a financial product, in this case income protection, helped their finances recover from that that illness and every advisor firm out there now we've been we've been talking about protection and focusing on protection for so many years will have stories like those seven families that they can turn into either videos or or audios like this or articles or 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 webinars to get those positive stories out there because people love hearing about real people and i think that's what seven families resonated with me so much for it was real people but you're dealing with real people and real people are claiming and their finances are recovering because of the advice that you've given to them and those stories are absolutely invaluable if we can get them out there in any sort of you know piece piece of press you know if there is a case study in there with with somebody telling their story and their experience in whatever sort of industry it is it's far more important than just just a piece of advertising and i think the whole seven families approach to making these seven families come alive and tell their stories was absolutely key not just in terms of you know engaging perhaps with with more journalists and getting them on board and helping them to understand perhaps a bit more what the industry does rather than just paying out money but actually 
supporting families when they need it most. I mean, I, I think also just from an IFA point of view, you know, an intermediate point of view, it really sort of helped them better appreciate what happens at the claim stage. Because as I was having a conversation with an insurer this morning, the claims teams do an amazing job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously every year the claims claims data now gets published, which is fantastic. But there's not really enough in terms of actually translating that into real stories mm-hmm. and what's the experience that a claimant might have to go through. And, you know, there's absolutely areas where we can still improve to make sure that claimants have the best possible experience at the time when they need the least amount of hassle. But, you know, the claims teams do work really hard and they've got some amazing things in place to actually help support families through rehab or instigating new processes to help that money get paid faster. And we need to be far better at sort of giving that overall understanding of the claims process as well as actually just got what gets paid out. And I think, you know, this, the family that always resonates with me, the seven families, is, is the Pickfords. And mm. I think probably I think anybody working in our business that doesn't get a bit teary after watching one of Paul Pickford's videos, I think is probably in the wrong job. Because <laughs> really, you know, if you're not engaged enough to know that what you're doing can make a massive difference to people like Paul and Vicky, then yeah, perhaps it's time to look for a different career because really your efforts are possibly not being being put in the right position. And of course, your CEO, Tom Bagery, stood up at the Life Search Awards earlier in the year and effectively said to the industry, you know, the claim is our product. That's what yeah. that's our product, not the critical illness policy or the term assurance or the income protection. It's the claim that ultimately our customers are buying. What sort of reaction have you had to that statement? Because it did. I remember a lot of people sitting there nodding their heads quite sagely and stroking their chins. What's been the response to that uh, statement since? I think a lot of people have responded really positively, which is fantastic. You know, Tom saying that at our awards, I guess maybe sort of helped people that have been advocating that for a while within their organizations um, to sort of illustrate that actually, yeah, we do need to be making more of our claims history and claims experience. Um, But also I think, you know, within insurers in general, there's been a lot more talk about claims. Um, Aviva brought out, you know, a really great claims report this year, rather than just focusing on what data got paid. They've really brought it more to life. They've given a lot more examples. They've really given so much more information to intermediaries and the wider industry to understand what the overall claims experience for Aviva claimants was was like in 2016. So I'm not saying that that report was as a direct result of what Tom said, um, because it was, I'm sure it was probably already yeah. in, in, in process. But I think it definitely has got a lot more people talking about we need to be making far more of claims and we need to make sure that we are designing products that are not going to catch people out. You know, there's a lot of discussions about simple products. Mm. And I think a lot of our products are simple at the point of actually purchasing them. It's what happens at claim stage where there's lots of ifs, buts and maybes and hidden, not hidden terms, conditions, because obviously they're there, they're written out. But when you're buying a policy, you're not necessarily going to be reading all the small print. And for an advisor, you're not going to be able to be in a position to go through every single terms and condition on that policy before selling it, because otherwise you'd never make any sale at Mm. all. So that's where we need to be far better, designing products that are far more likely to pay out. And if that means that we've got to push the prices up to cover that extra risk, I'd rather a client take out a policy at a premium that's fair to them that they know that's going to get paid out than have a policy that's sold to them on a cheaper basis that means that actually they may be let down at claim stage. Um, and I think that's something that we all need to be need to be focusing on far better and looking at where we've been able to shave off money to get you know the policies cheaper. Well, what's how do we have we done that? And is that actually a good thing for clients? Because I think at the end of the day, it's probably not. 
Yeah, of course, that was a topic that came up at the recent Protection Review Conference. And I think one of the uh, things that was was stated quite strongly there is that we should consider non-contestability. Now, undoubtedly, that would push the price up a little bit. But who's going to make that first move when everybody is a little bit, oh, if we put the prices up and nobody else does, then we'll lose business. But ultimately, introducing something like a non-contestability clause would benefit the customer, ultimately. And maybe that's that, that slight increase in prices is a price that the industry has to uh, pay to get there. Yeah, I mean, non-contestability is certainly an option. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I've had sort of mixed mixed views on whether that works or not. Uh-huh. Um I've had people who, you know, say that there are a lot of insurers in the States that would probably like to rewind the clock and not have non-contestability products. Mm. And, you know, and, and, you know, let's face it, that there are people that perhaps for one reason or another have not disclosed everything. And is it really fair that their policy gets paid out just because it's three years down the line and nobody can do anything about it? <laughs> yeah. um, but at the same time, if it gives more confidence to people taking out these products, um, and makes the claims process simpler because if you're beyond that two-year point, then hopefully the claims should get paid a lot faster and your experience should be a lot better. Then that obviously could have a benefit too. So I certainly think it's something that we should be looking into a bit more carefully. One of the things that I really like about Life Search is the aforementioned Life Search Awards, and it's actually a genius piece of marketing if you think about it, um, because what you've done is you've created a series of awards that your customers want to win. And, and I mean customers as in financial product providers as opposed to the, the end customer who buys those financial products. So you've created this environment where life insurance companies are almost falling over each other to win your awards. And in order to win those awards, they've got to be good at service, good at product, good at underwriting, etc. So how, how, how important is the Life Search Awards now to your business model? I certainly think that, as you said, it, it's fantastic. Well, one for me, it's fantastic that it's been such a success. Um, having been involved in it since since we first started, um, and also to have insurers be, you know, absolutely chuffed to bits when they have won, and be determined to win next time if they miss out, it has really helped to kind of perhaps focus their minds on what they need to what they need to do. Mm. Because whilst it's voted by, you know, we don't have shortlists as such. It's it's our people that vote for pretty much every single award. Yeah. Um, it's pretty much you know whichever whichever person or or um, firm gets the most votes wins that that's it it's not the management team at life search that decides it, it's the people on the on the front line um but i think whilst the life search experience might differ to some other intermediaries i think overall certainly with categories such as best critical illness provider and best income protection provider you know we're wanting those firms to be as fair as they possibly can to consumers to design propositions that are attractive that are simple to buy um, and that really do as much as possibly can to help clients and their families be as protected as possible. Um, and that will be the same for, for every intermediary. So whereas service um, may differ from firm to firm, the actual quality of the product, all of us are out there recommending it. So if we can help insurers improve their propositions and get better and help more families get protected, and that's overall benefit to the industry, as well as obviously getting a bit of nice PR for Life Search. Then absolutely, that that's fantastic. And I think one of the things that I really appreciate is I'm lucky enough to go and see a lot of insurers, mm. and I love it when I go into an insurer firm and I don't just see our trophy sitting in some you know head office trophy cabinet where hardly anybody gets to see it. I love it when I'm walking around the servicing teams or the underwriting teams and they're sitting there on people's desks 
um, you know, looking, you know, and people are really proud to have them next to them. That's what I love to see when the awards that we've given to that particular team are actually sitting with that team and not in some MD's head office. So that's what I like to see. <laughs> and of course, it's a really fun do as well. And Emma, how would you say Life Search has changed over the years that you've been there? We started off um, trying to meet the need of customers who wanted to get advice but didn't necessarily want to go and see somebody face to face. So Live Search really was set up to fill that gap to enable people to get advice really easily in a time that suited them, weekends and evenings, over the phone and still get good quality of advice. Um, one thing that's really changed over those years is the increase in people seeking to buy online. Right. Um, you know, we weren't set up initially to be able to do that. And we've responded to the needs of consumers to to want to buy themselves, non-advised, over, you know, online. So mm-hmm. we've we've now adapted to that. So I think that's where we have really changed, listening to what consumers want and trying to meet their needs as best as possible. Um, and also trying to um, encourage insurers to meet those needs as well. You know, we still do live in a world where some insurers still send out things by post. Um, and, you know, we need to be adapting far more to technology. And I think that's something that certainly came out of the the latest Protection Review Conference too. You know, we, we had, you know, Legal and General back in 2001 develop a really great online system. We had then Friends Provident design an even better one, eSelect, back in 2003 time. And yet we've still got some systems that don't really, you know, they're not really much better than those systems back in those days. Or sometimes they haven't actually got the features that can beat them. So we definitely need to do a lot more to to meet the needs of consumers that want to buy efficiently online, you know, over the phone or um, by, by themselves using technology. And we've just got to make sure that we're, we're keeping up with the trends, really. And certainly if we're to help engage with far more younger consumers, we've got to make sure that we're not still stuck in the dark ages when it comes to helping people arrange protection and that we are helping them to do it in a way that they want to buy. Absolutely. I mean, I was dealing with a company recently about a claim and they only communicate by snail mail. They wouldn't even phone me. I mean, that is just outrageous in this day and age. I mean, if you have got customers who want to talk to you on Twitter or even Snapchat, then you're going to have to be communicating with them on these modern platforms. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's always there's always, you know, the need for us and rightly so for us to be careful about data protection in terms of making sure that we're speaking to the right person. But ultimately, you know, we've got to we've got to adapt, Um, you know, and if we don't, then we're going to lose some of this momentum that we've created with more people getting protection. We've obviously got a hell of a long way to go. But, you know, we have been making strides and some of the insurers have been really good at using technology to develop their propositions. But we've still got quite a way to go in terms of making making sure that we do that. But I do think that that is something that LifeSearch has been really good at driving forward and encouraging others to do th- do so too. So Emma, you're also involved in indeed LifeSearch gets involved in lots of industry initiatives, but you're, you've personally been involved in the Protection Distributors Group. Just give me a little bit of background about how that started and how you got involved. Yeah, I mean, for, for a while, this is something that um, internally at LifeSearch we, we've talked about. Um, the Protection Distributor Group was kind of set up, you know, really um, as an idea that, that Tom had predominantly. Um, we There are lots of organisations w- within our industry. Uh, we're a member of, of some of them in terms of trying to drive standards forward. But we felt there wasn't really one that was purely focused on the needs of consumers. So and also that was, you know, solely sort of populated by distributors either Mm -hmm. so we set up the protection distributor group with nine other firms um, which is fantastic nine other firms who are also you know passionate about protection they might not be protection specialists but they're certainly 
all out there trying to get as many families and people protected as possible. Um, and really, our, our focus is not what's in it for us as, as distributors, but actually how can we improve the outcomes for consumers, whether that be through improving products or looking at claims data and improving that or supporting seven families. Um, and one of the, the the early conversations we had was just about the lack of people that are taking up, um, te- putting their policies into trust. Mm. And because of that, that payouts could be could be slower to families and that a lot of people may struggle to just pay a basic funeral so whilst we'd love to be able to get that issue of not enough people putting plans into trust nailed that's a bit of a big project when you think about it so we thought well how else can we do this to try and help families get access to money faster and that's why we set up the um, funeral payment pledge Mm. uh, which is to encourage insurers to commit to paying at least £5,000 to the funeral director upon ag- agreeing the claim and to proactively offer it to families as well. So that if the money can't be paid immediately because of probate delays and there's no will and there's no trust in place, then at the very least, that family could have the comfort that the funeral, or at the very least, the bulk of the cost of the funeral would get paid. And we're hugely pleased and proud that so many insurers have already signed up for it and and exceeded what we, what we wanted. We wanted them to do that, but we thought we'd set our our um, requirements pretty low to try and encourage as many insurers as possible to sign up with as lower risk to them um so you know it's really fantastic that as a result of that we know that there's going to be lots of families out there going forward that are going to have far fewer money worries um just paying a funeral which which is great and we've still got a few more to sign up but uh, we're very confident that we'll get the rest to do that um and other things that we're looking at as well are our claims as we said earlier you know how how are claimants being supported are there processes that could be improved is the claims data as transparent as it could be and are there anomalies that perhaps could be ironed out um just to make the data as as easy to compare as possible and to be as fair as possible when people are actually looking at the data um but also you know communicating claims one of our one of our concerns is that a lot of insurers don't inform the intermediary when a claim has been made Mm. Um, for a number of reasons, data protection, systems, processes, or that they just don't trust the intermediary not to hound the claimant's family, which Mm. is a real shame. There's obviously a few firms out there that are doing that, which is then causing problems to the rest of us who purely just want to make sure that we're not writing out to a client who passed away last year and causing distress to that family, or for those of us like LifeSearch who have a claims team, um, to support claimants to help them through that process, um, or like you know, Live Search. Who I mean, we pay for our our claimants to have access to Red Arc. So where Red Arc isn't offered by one of the insurers that we recommended, um, our claimants can have access to that fantastic services out there. And if we don't know about a claim, we can't offer that to our to our families and, and our claimants. So um, that's really important to us. So that's something that that we're going to be campaigning for going forward as well, just to improve the overall claims experience. As I said earlier making sure that the insurers are shouting loud and proud about all the good things they do do about claims because unfortunately for some reason they just keep quiet about it and i think that's a real shame yeah it is isn't it and, and it's a remarkable achievement that you've um in, got them to introduce this funeral pledge in some respects i guess it's a bit of a it's sad that they haven't come up with that idea themselves but then on the un- other hand at least they've now got the um, protection distributors group almost as a sounding board for great new ideas like this and hopefully as the group continues to develop you know you'll become more 
um, involved in the product development process going forward. Emma, what would you say then was the one thing that you'd like the listeners of the Marketing Finance podcast to take away from your experiences in the protection industry? Um, I suppose it depends on what role they're in, really. I Mm. mean, I'd certainly say that if they work for an insurer, I'd love them to do as much as they possibly can to make sure that we don't lose the momentum that we had with seven families Mm. and that there is a next project and that money is found to support that project because we saw, you know, a nearly 10% up increase in income protection Mm. sales last year. But the indications are that beginning of this year, it's kind of fallen a bit. Now, is there a coincidence with seven families finishing and that dip happening? The jury's out perhaps, but you know, I certainly think it would be a real shame for us to to ignore what the success was for seven families and to not do something collectively again. So I'd certainly want them to do that. I certainly would like insurers to focus again on, on as I said, making products simpler to claim on. Um, certainly, for example, for self-employed people with income protection, let's not give them so many hurdles to jump mm. through. Let's not try and get them to run their businesses in the ground before we can pay out a penny to them. You know, they, they need our protection and we should design products that meet their needs. And for intermediaries as well, you know, there are so many fantastic intermediaries out there doing brilliant stuff with protection, um, you know, talking to their clients about it and getting them them engaged. But what else can we do more? Do they have all their advisors within their organisations selling protection as much as they should do? Um, to networks, what can you do to make sure that all the, the members that you've got are doing as much as they possibly can to either sell protection themselves or partner with a firm who can do it for them? Um, because I absolutely appreciate that some intermediaries just don't have the capability or the capacity, um, you know, the, the knowledge or the inclination to, to actually do it. But they should have a care to make sure that their clients can still access really good quality advice through a partner. Um, and I think that's all, all that we need to make sure that we're doing as much as we can as an industry to help as many families as possible have that peace of mind. They're not relying on the state, which we know is, is doing as much as it can to reduce its costs. So I think there's a number of things that we can do to work together. All of us have got a really key responsibility here to get more people understanding the needs of protection and what options are available. So we just need to work together and not have perhaps so much of a competition against firms, (laughs) but actually focus on the common goal at hand, because if we can all grow the market, all of us are going to benefit from it. And as I said, you know, certainly the UK consumers are definitely going to be benefiting because far fewer of them are going to be worrying about money when, when they get ill or somebody passes away early. Some really strong calls to action there, Emma. Really strong calls to action. Thanks for that. And just before we wrap up, Emma, is there a business book you've read recently which has really made you sit up and think, yeah, really can associate with that? Uh, one book that, that all of us at the Life Search Management team um, read, um, instigated by, by Tom, was um, The Power of Why by Simon Sinek. Oh, yeah. Um, and that really was to, to underline the, the value of, of culture, you know, really looking at not what you do or how you do it, but why you're doing it. And mm-hmm. I think with our industry, that really resonates with all of us. You know, why we're doing something is absolutely key. And until you really understand why we're here and what our end focus is, as in it's all about the claim, uh, you know, our product is the claim, then really, you know, what we're doing and how we're doing it, you can't really focus on that until you've actually understood the why. And I think reading that book, one, it kind of underlined why Life Search is perhaps different mm-hmm. and that we did have our kind of focus on our culture right. Um, but it really kind of illustrated that I think lots of other people within our industry really need to be focusing on the why, the end goal, and not what we need to do and how we do it. For example, not, you know, how can we get more market share by adding on a few extra critical illnesses, 
but what's the actual purpose at the end of it? What mm. difference is this actually going to make? Why are we here? And, you know, so I think I think that book actually is is a good read for anybody in protection is all I'm saying, I suppose. I've read it myself and, yeah, I've got a lot of um, uh, admiration for the sort of stuff that Simon Sinek writes. It's really good stuff. So, Emma, yeah. what's the best way that people should get in touch with Life Search if they want to find out a bit more about what you do? Go to our website. It's probably a really good place to start. We've yeah. got a lot of information on there about what, what Life Search is all about and what, what products and uh, advice we can provide. Um, so www.lifesearch.co.uk. Um, or you can contact me um, by email or, or, or phone. So my email address is Emma Thompson at lifesearch.co.uk with any questions you've got. And um, either I'll come back to you or I'll, I'll um, ask one of my esteemed colleagues to do so. Fantastic. Emma, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today about all things protection. Really interesting stuff happening at Life Search. Thanks for coming on the show. And obviously, I'll see you at a future protection event in the City of London in the near future. Many thanks, Roger. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MAF for links to the topics, apps and books we discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. If you are a business person, financial services professional or journalist and have a marketing or finance story to tell, please get in touch. You could be the next guest on the show. And do remember, nothing we talk about on the show is financial advice of any kind. It's just thoughts and opinions. Okay? Okay.